Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Hey, Pete, doing fairly well, all things considered. And before we get started with today's podcast, Pete and I would both like to first extend our gratitude for all of the healthcare workers, frontline workers, city workers, and everyone keeping the stores open, the trucks running, the deliveries going, and keeping daily life as possible as can be right now. Our thoughts are with everyone impacted by this virus, and we certainly wish speedy recoveries to anyone impacted and their families and loved ones. Certainly doing something like like this at, a, at, at this kind of time seems difficult, but our hope is that this will give listeners who are trapped at home something to, something to ponder while, while they're in quarantine or um, sheltering in place. I should mention first that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Children and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a real treat for you. We've invited Dr. Anthony Romeo on the podcast. For most of you, Dr. Romeo will need no introduction, but for those of you who aren't as well acquainted with him, I'll briefly detail his remarkable life. After growing up in uh, northern Idaho, Dr. Romeo went to Notre Dame, where he became captain of the football team. He completed his medical training in the Midwest, and then became one of the first shoulder and elbow fellows under Dr. Uh, Matson at the University of Washington. He then began his career at Russian University Medical Center in Chicago. And from there, he's grown to be internationally renowned. He has nearly 400 publications. He's received hundreds of awards. He served as president of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society. He's been invited to speak and to operate nationally and internationally and is known not only for his thoughtful approach, but certainly for his operative skill. He's currently the chief of Rothman, New York, and the chief medical editor of Orthopedics Today. On a personal level, he's the reason I personally became a shoulder and elbow surgeon. Dr. Romeo, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for being here. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the invitation. I'm humbled and honored to have the opportunity to speak to you. Well, thanks again. We have uh, certainly a lot to discuss today, and um, certainly these are trying times right now throughout the United States and throughout the world, and we'll try to take a focus on your career as a shoulder surgeon as we begin this podcast. So why don't we get started? Our first question for you today is um, who or what inspired you to become a shoulder and elbow surgeon? Uh, this goes back um, to my playing days at the University of Notre Dame. Um, during a spring competition uh, in football, uh, I was a defensive back, strong safety, and I came from the outside corner to meet um, a six foot two, 245 pound fullback to stop him from going into the end zone. And we hit, and he did not score, but I did not get up. Uh, I was probably one of a few concussions during my career. But more importantly, my right shoulder was injured and I had a significant AC joint injury and couldn't continue for the rest of the spring. I tried to train very hard over the summer. I received a number of recommendations of how to take care of my shoulder. Nothing seemed to work. And as I went into fall, I was not as strong and not as capable with my right arm, um, which affected some of my play. I saw how the sports doctors seemed to have a pretty good handle on a lot of the knee problems, at least that was my perception. But shoulders, it was sort of just kind of put some ice on it and see how it goes. And I think that affected the way I thought about shoulders from there on. So when I went to medical school, uh, anatomy was my favorite class. After my first year, I was an anatomy instructor for the physical therapy program at St. Louis University, and I loved spending hours and hours and hours on the musculoskeletal anatomy. I then went to the Cleveland Clinic, and I chose that institution, and fortunately, they chose me also because of their very uh, broad interest in orthopedics uh, in particular, um, sports medicine, and they had a surgeon there, John Brems, who was the very first one-year fellow for Charlie Neer, who was not from Columbia Presbyterian, uh, where Dr. Neer was practicing. He had a special 
recommendation by the chairman of the department at the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Alan Wild, and Dr. Neer accepted him so that he would spend a year with him in New York. And it was uh, Dr. my experience with being with Dr. Brems uh, that really drove this interest in shoulder and sports. And also at that time, uh, there was a uh, Dr. Tom Anderson, who was a young surgeon who had trained in Wisconsin and under Bill Clancy, a very well-known sports medicine doctor, and then with Dr. Bergfeld in the Cleveland Clinic. And Tom was doing arthroscopic surgeries that I'd never seen before to treat problems around the shoulder and the elbow. And so those two really drove my interest in shoulder and elbow. When I applied to the fellowship for shoulder and elbow, I remember my peers and others saying, why are you going into shoulder and elbow? There's like five operations. You do a rotator cuff repair open, you do an instability repair open, you do a shoulder replacement, and you either do a hemi or a total, and then there's a few little elbow operations other than fractures. Why would you wanna spend all your time trying to learn that? I applied to the University of Washington, and, and the history was there had been multiple applicants from the Cleveland Clinic before, but they had never been accepted at the University of Washington. And so when I went out there and interviewed with Dr. Matson and spent the day with him in the days when the match was not uh, actually formalized, at the end of the day, Dr. Matson sat me down and said, we would like you to spend a year with us. Would you be interested? It was my first interview. I had a number of other ones scheduled, including some of the top sports medicine programs in the country. And I looked at Dr. Matson and said, I would be honored to be here. And I did not do another interview, just one. That year was incredible. Um, Dr. Matson and the late Dr. Douglas T. Harriman were at a different level in the way they thought about shoulder problems in so many ways. And the principles were just driven home time and time again. So no matter what tool you had, no matter what approach you had, the principle of how to be successful in managing that shoulder problem or that elbow problem was very clear. This turned out to be incredibly valuable to me because at the time, arthroscopic surgery of the shoulder was going through an incredible revolution and change. But many people were taking the technology of arthroscopy and applying it to the shoulder. Whereas my approach was, remember what Dr. Madsen and Dr. Harriman taught me, what are the principles? Let's design the operations and the tools to match those principles. And that turned out to be very insightful and I was able to be involved in a lot of the early design and development of procedures and techniques that are still used today. In addition, during my fellowship, a very sad event occurred that changed my life. When we went home at the Christmas holiday, everything seemed to be okay. When we came back in January, the very first day on Monday, I was operating with Dr. Harriman and he told me that his leg had been bothering him throughout the entire Christmas holiday and he had to go for an x-ray. So at the conclusion of our last case, he left. He never came back. A few hours later, Howard Chansky, who was the tumor fellow, came to me and said, Tony, we have a problem. Doug has something in his tibia and it's not good. I spent the evening and into the night where they did the biopsy. And we actually looked at that biopsy. And what we knew was that there was a lot more cells than there should have been on that picture. Initially, it was thought it was a, a mantinoma of the tibia. It turned out to be a osteogenic sarcoma in a 39-year-old. Um, Doug had to undergo chemotherapy, limb salvage surgery, and Dr. Matson came to me after a few weeks and said, I have two choices here. I can shut down Doug's practice and you can spend the rest of the year with me or 
you can run Doug's practice. I'll help you as much as I can. Doug will be here sometimes and sometimes he won't. And so you'll be a fellow with me for two and a half days a week and you'll run Doug's practice for two and a half days a week. And I accepted that as a challenge and as an honor. Um, it was an incredible experience. And I have to tell you that it was made even more special by the fact that there was an international fellow that was with me. And due to the rules, he was not able to be the first assist. Excuse me, he was not able to be the lead surgeon, but he could be the first assist. And that was a surgeon named Young Go Lee, R-H-E-E, who we all know in the shoulder world has gone on to become one of the most famous shoulder surgeons in all of Asia being president of the Korean Shoulder and Elbow Society, taking care of their baseball teams. And when Young came to the United States, he had already been in practice for five years and showed an incredible intellect towards shoulders. So that was my first assist on the cases that I was doing when I was taking Doug Harriman's position. And it was an incredible learning experience to be together with Young, to have Dr. Matson as my backup, and to be representing Doug Harriman. And I probably could not have learned more in six months than I did during that time. The side note is that Doug lived seven more years after multiple surgeries, multiple rounds of chemotherapy. He died on his birthday, December 24th, Christmas Eve, uh, with his wife and three daughters by his side. He contributed an incredible amount of important principles to shoulder and elbow. And when I mention them, you that are in shoulder and elbow will know all of them. The concept, the concept of obligate translation, the concept of compression, concavity compression, the concept of the humeral scapular motion interface. These are all things that Dr. Matson somehow envisioned, Doug and Dr. Matson talked about it, and then Doug did the research to prove these principles. That was an impact that I will never forget and always remember. Then I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to work at, the, at Rush University. And what happened was is that um, I um, was very close with Dr. Brems and Dr. Bergfeld at the Cleveland Clinic. And Rush was looking for a sports medicine doctor, not necessarily someone just in shoulders. And Dr. Bergfeld called um, Bernard Bach, Bernie Bach, and said that he thought that I would be perfect for the position and that I should they should take me. And then he called me and he said, I just want to let you know, I'm going to get you a job at Rush, but you better not let me down. And of course, that was just Dr. Bergfeld in his old school way. And I don't think I let him down. So it's a long-winded answer to tell you that the impact on my life was a personal injury. Subsequently, my devotion to understanding anatomy and the three-dimensional components around the shoulder Dr. John Brems, Dr. Tom Anderson, Dr. John Bergfeld, and then Dr. Matson and Dr. Harriman. And that influence remains with me today in almost everything that I do. You ended your story with um, beginning at Rush, and um, I think we all know that since starting there, you accomplished an incredible um, number and variety of things in, in, in impacting a huge different, a huge variety of areas of shoulder surgery from rotator cuff to instability to replacement and the treatment of arthritis. Which of those things is your, your, or which maybe among them were your proudest accomplishments? Which are the things you look back and say, that was really something that was worth doing? I think that um, I alluded to that uh, before, uh, and that is that what I felt was one of the important contributions um, early on was that uh, Dr. Matson and Dr. Harriman were not 
uh, as involved in the Arthroscopy Association of North America. And, and although they were working on some tools and techniques, uh, that was not their strongest area of influence as it was within the American shoulder and elbow surgeons. And so I think my love of sports, my love of, of technology, the principles that I learned from Dr. Matson and Dr. Harriman, and applying that to this budding field of shoulder arthroscopy granted me an incredible opportunity at a very early time in my career to get up in front of audiences of both national and international prominence and say, we can do an operation that we do open that we know that works, and now we can do that arthroscopically. And here's how to do that. And not only were, was I involved in some of the design and development, but I was heavily involved in the education to teach other people. And how did that happen? Well, again, serendipitously, incredible event occurred, and that is Dr. Howard Sweeney and the senior leadership of the Arthroscopy Association of North America created the Orthopedic Learning Center about a year or two before I came to Chicago. And I devoured the meetings there. I was able to get on the faculty list my first year in practice. And at that time, they were having more than 10 shoulder meetings per year between ANA, ASES, and AOSSM. And so every one of those courses, typically Friday night, Saturday, and then Sunday till noon, I was there. And I was half faculty, half student. And my instructors were the who's who of shoulder surgery at that time. Too many to list, all of them well-known. And so I was learning arthroscopy from Steve Snyder, Dick Kaspari, and others that pioneered these techniques, and shoulder surgery from Gary Gartsman and Evan Flato and many other well-known surgeons that were coming to town to teach, and I was on the faculty. So this was incredible because then I would, on Monday, incorporate what I learned and what my practice was. And within less than two years of being in practice, at that time, there was no um, shoulder and elbow opportunity specific at Rush. There was one of the founding members of the American Shoulder and Elbow Society who was practicing in Chicago, who was 63 at the time, Dr. Melvin Post, who has since passed away. But I was told, you can't really develop just a shoulder and elbow practice in Chicago. You have to really do sports. And two years into practice, I gave up everything uh, but shoulder and elbow because I was so busy. And so every one of those meetings, and I suspect in my first five years, I attended close to 50 meetings at the Orthopedic Learning Center. And so this, is, uh, this was an, uh, an important thing. And, and, and then the last thing, and then I'll put it all together, was that my third year in practice, my very good friend, Dr. Michael Pearl, who was a year ahead of me at the University of Washington Shoulder and Elbow Fellowship, came back from the European shoulder and elbow meeting and had a layover in Chicago and called me and said, Tony, I, I, I've been telling you about this project I've been doing in my garage, trying to figure out the anatomy of the proximal humerus. And I realized that none of the major shoulder arthroplasty systems in the United States have the correct geometry. So my paper was accepted at the Shoulder and Elbow Society uh, in Europe. So I went over to present it, and a half hour before I'm presenting it, I'm walking through the industry booths, and I came across this company called Turnier that I'd never heard about before. And I literally pulled out my data sheets, and I looked at the design of their implant and the sizes they developed, and I realized it was as if someone had stolen my secret. We had the exact same numbers. They had recognized it didn't match. So I presented my paper, and within minutes, I was approached by representatives of that company, and they brought me to France 
after the meeting to meet with Jill Walsh. And I just have to tell you, Tony, I think this is going to change the world of shoulder arthroplasty. This was in 1995. So in 1996, in this, uh, and after the first of the year, Michael and I went back to St. Ismer and met with Mr. Tournier and Jill Walsh and Pascal Boileau. And in 1997, Mike and I were the first ones to put the Tournier shoulder arthroplasty system into patients in the United States. And unfortunately, because of Mike's contractual restrictions working as an employed physician, he could not promote a company that he could possibly be a consultant for. And by default, I became the primary consultant for Tournier in 1997. And when I put this all together, and Peter, you asked, what am I most proud of? First of all, I'm most proud of the fact that I'm recognized as someone who can educate other surgeons and healthcare providers on how, on what is the right indication for surgical procedures, and then how to do them at the highest level that we currently have available with the tools and technology. That ability to educate and share has allowed me to influence so many people throughout my life. And there's nothing more rewarding than being in some foreign country and have a surgeon come up to me and say, you know, I heard one of your lectures a few years ago, or I saw the live surgery a few years ago, or I saw the video that you made. And since that, I've incorporated in those techniques you showed me. And I can tell you, I am such a better shoulder surgeon because of what I've learned from you. And I just want to thank you for that. And I've had the incredible privilege of hearing that more than once throughout my career. And so education, I would say, is the greatest thing that I've that I feel that I've contributed. And then behind that, I was fortunate enough to be on this early wave of arthroscopy. And I think what I did is I held the arthroscopists and the technologists feet to the fire to say, you can't change the operation because of tools from what we know actually works. You've got to change the tools and the instruments to match what actually works. And so holding on to those principles was critical. And the last thing in terms of the world of shoulder arthroplasty, I was fortunate enough to be involved in what I think has revolutionized the way we care for patients uh, with shoulder arthritis. And that opportunity to uh, be part of that and to work with the people that have changed the world with regards to the management of shoulder arthritis uh, was an incredible privilege and I think, again, added to my abilities to teach and educate others. Certainly incredible to think about all the people you've influenced over the years and decades. And speaking of education and training, especially for our younger listeners of this podcast, you know, you've established yourself as a leader, teaching residents, fellows, surgeons in practice. You've trained both Peter and myself, and I'll echo what Peter said in his introduction here. You've been a significant influence on my career and my career trajectory and your teaching pearls live on daily in my OR and clinic. My residents and fellows will often hear me say, that's how Dr. Romeo does it, or Dr. Romeo says, don't do that, or something along those lines. And so, you know, it's, it's incredible to know how many people you've influenced and then how many of their trainees you continue to influence even when you're not physically present in the OR. So along those lines, what do you think is the most difficult part of teaching residents, fellows, and younger surgeons? And you alluded to what's the most rewarding in terms of when they you know, when the surgeons tell you what they've been able to do because of your pearls, but what, what would you say is the most difficult part of teaching and, and how can you help our listeners maybe um, work on those, those difficulties? Um, I think that, that uh, the difficulty and the challenges change as you go through your own career. I think early on, you want to get better. You recognize that what you really want to do you're able to accomplish, but not quite at the level that you'd like to be. So the early stages, 
you want to teach and educate, but you'd like to be doing these procedures with your own hands. And you've got to become comfortable with delegating and mentoring others to use their hands in a way that they can learn while you're continuing to advance your own skills. Then you get to a point not to be arrogant, but where you feel that these operations are things that um, you've done quite a few times. And although each and every one of them is like a painting, it's a man-made experience and you have to focus and you have to get uh, to the final uh, designated goals, you know that you have an experience and a skill set that's allowed you to accomplish that in your own ORs as well as other people's ORs in front of large audiences. And so you became more comfortable with delegating and helping others and knowing when uh, you need to step in and guide them a little further. The problem here becomes a sense of, of the fact that you recognize that the skill set of the people that you work with is variable. And, and so you have to adjust. You learn things about the fact that people that are single-handed dominant and do not have as much dexterity with their opposite hand, you have, to, you have to actually change your teaching style and technique so that you can help them get better. You can't uh, force them to use their non-dominant hand, which doesn't have the same dexterity, and then be upset that they're not quite at the same level. You have to help them come up with strategies to be able to do the procedure in total as if both hands are working in concert. And in addition, you have to be careful to not be discouraged when you are teaching people that are not as passionate about these procedures that you are. As the younger residents, the senior residents that have selected a different areas of specialization, and even fellows who are less interested, you have to Avoid the personal bias. Well, why should I teach when they're not really that interested? Recognizing that they're going to go out into the community and do these procedures. And if not just for them, for the people they'll be caring for, you need to continue to be motivated to try to teach them as much as possible. And then I think, I think the challenge becomes at the, at the, as you get further on in your career is that we just would like to have a process where there was more opportunities for the people that were teaching the surgeons in training at whatever level to have more hands-on experience. Our change in our healthcare system, our change in the way that we're, the hours available has affected uh, the opportunity to have as much hands-on experience. And that also can be a source of frustration when you have individuals who are very smart, very talented potentially, but just have not had much experience. And we've got to figure out better ways to get that experience, to move them further along their learning curve and help them get better. Because as we always have to keep in mind, they're taking care of patients too. And in some way, as you mentioned, Rachel, I recognize that when you're caring for patients, that somewhere in the back of your mind, something I said or something that I showed you may make a difference in whether that patient gets a good result or not. So I do have a responsibility in an indirect way to make sure that I do the best I can when I'm teaching other surgeons in training. And again, that gets more difficult at times, but in my personal opinion, the reward is probably the most satisfying and continually um, rewarding aspect of what I do. I moved to New York and assumed a position of a higher level administrative responsibilities. And due to some realignment of healthcare uh, uh, priorities, my opportunity to work with residents and fellows has been dramatically reduced over the opportunity that I had when I was in Chicago. 
And I would have to say that that is probably my greatest disappointment in that I have had to give up some of that for the other responsibilities related to administrative activities. And if there's one thing that I will work very hard to continue to change is my impact and my ability to continue to teach and educate surgeons in training, because I think it's so important uh, for the legacy of our profession, for the legacy of the Shoulder and Elbow Society, which has been so focused on education, and for my personal legacy, because I think in the long run, that's where I'll make my greatest impact in terms of this profession, and that is in being able to share what I've learned with others so that they can then use that and their patients going forward. It's um, it's really amazing to hear you talk about um, teaching and how, how valuable it's been um, to you and to, to the contributions you've made. Certainly, I think one of the things you, you mentioned that's really interesting is about, and I know that you are left-handed, um, and I've often, you know, I'm I'm also left-handed. I've often thought that it's a real advantage in shoulder surgery because left-handed people tend to be better with their right hands than right-handed people are with their left hands because we live in a right-handed world. Certainly, I think that your recognition of that is just just a symptom of how deeply you've thought about the procedures and technically how to perform them. One of the things that I think was really interesting you mentioned too is about the challenge facing young surgeons who are develop their own operative skill and then also place in a position where they are teaching. And I've certainly found that to be a challenge in my own career. What, what advice other would you, other advice would you give to young surgeons? I mean, I think the advice you give about the OLC is really great advice to spend as much time there as possible. Any other advice you would give to young surgeons starting their careers about how to be the most impactful or how to best help their patients as they go forward? I have a few uh, comments I can make about that and, and hopefully they will, uh, help. Um, number one, I think we all enter into our profession with a lifelong desire to learn. And particularly in orthopedics, I think it's clear that we all have a underlying sense of competitive spirit among ourselves and among others that drives us to continue to learn. And don't ever let that go away. Whether you're one year in practice or five years in practice or 10 years in practice, don't forget how you got here. And that is because you wanted to learn and you wanted to be one of the best. And you need to keep learning every day. And that's an important principle. And we know that this is a universal principle for anyone that's successful. So you have to figure out in your own life how to balance the many responsibilities that will happen as you become uh, involved in your family, your community, uh, your society. At some point, you're operating on somebody and they have entrusted you with their life and you have to be willing to bear that responsibility and say, I'm doing something every day to get better. I think that's really an important principle for people to hold on to. Secondly, I think it is very valuable to be involved in our societies that are focused on education. So make the effort to attend meetings that are core parts of what you do, whether it's the Orthopedic Learning Center or other facilities. Thirdly, I really do believe that we learn so much by trying to teach. I have been blessed by being in an environment where I've had people like you, Peter, and you, Rachel, who are absolute superstars. And when you come to the OR or come to the office, your questions are challenging, interesting, and motivating for me to try to figure out if I don't know the answer, well, we better try to figure that out. I think that even when you're not as fortunate as I have been and you're working in a community or a smaller hospital or a smaller environment, 
So make the effort to try to teach those that are around you, your surgical tech, your physician assistant or first assist, the anesthesiologist, the circulating nurse, the family. It pushes you to a different level of understanding. And we all recognize that. First, you have to learn how to do it. And then you have to be able to show people that you can do it. And at some point, you have to be able to teach others. And I know that not everyone gets that opportunity, but just the process of trying to teach others about what you're doing and why you're doing it and why this makes sense is an incredible level of understanding that will allow you to become a better physician. The last thing I would say, and this is a little bit of the soft skills, is that our lives are complicated. And although the stress we handle very well, it's important that we try to balance our lives as much as possible. It's important that we have some sense of calm and peace when we're away from work, whether that's with your family, your loved ones, or activities you do on your own. And the reason why is because it's very clear that you cannot get into flow. You cannot get into the zone. You cannot be focused on what you're supposed to be doing if you're distracted by these other things that are happening in your life. And though when you reach that moment, what the psychologists call when you're in flow, that's when you're very, you're very best. Our goal should be, once we make incision, we should be in flow. We should be focused. We should be thinking about nothing other than caring for that patient and doing that operation at the very best level, whether you're right-handed or left-handed or ambidextrous. So if your left hand is not a good hand for you, but you're in a position where that has to do some of the more fine details, you learn to reposition yourself. You can't understand the perspective of the anatomy being on its side. You turn the camera 90 degrees and your brain all of a sudden sees something completely different and better. You have to be in flow. And that means when you start, that patient is the most important thing and the only thing you think about for the next one to two hours. And then you're going to become a better surgeon because we will become better if we keep practicing at our highest level. If we keep coming in distracted, not interested in teaching, just showing up to cross the case off our list, we'll continue to move towards the middle, move towards average. And that's not a really great way when you all of a sudden wake up out of the fog five years from now and realize, I really haven't gotten any better at this operation. I probably should start thinking about that. This is a lifelong effort. It's something that I challenge myself every day. It's not perfect. It's easier to talk about it than it is to do it. But when I, if I'm a young physician, I want to I wanna try my best to keep learning every day. I want to go to the meetings where I can have people that I trust will teach me how to do things. I want to show up to the OR and I want to teach other people what I'm trying to do, even if it's just uh, people that have nothing to do with orthopedics. And I want to be in a flow state when I'm doing my surgeries because I know that what I do for that one to two hours will affect that patient's life forever. And I don't want to mess that up. So those are the principles that I think about when I'm trying to do the best I can every day. Some incredible insight there. And I hope all of our listeners, whether young, old, or established, or anywhere in between, take this to heart. You know, Dr. Romeo, you've had this incredibly stunning career. And at the same time, especially early on, you raised five girls as a single parent, which makes your accomplishments all the more incredible. To our listeners out there who are struggling to find time to be surgeons, team physicians, researchers, educators, while also being parents or having outside outside of orthopedic obligations, 
What advice do you have for them? You've done this at the highest level, both personally and professionally. And so what pearls do you have for our listeners who are going through some of these same things? I, I, I think that the first thing I would say is that um, it's very important that you find a way to take care of yourself as a person. And that's not to become egocentric or selfish, but we need to take care of ourselves. And that means, and what I think I've followed throughout my life is a routine of proper nutrition, exercise, knowing when it's time to take a break and restoring my physical and mental capacities as best as possible. I think it's important that you try to work on those strategies. I think the other thing that's very important that you alluded to, Rachel, is that if you look at all the things that some people are able to accomplish, it's impossible to understand how you could do that in a 24-hour day. It just doesn't make sense. And that's the reality of everyone that's listening to this podcast. It's not a question of time management. It's a question of priority management. There's not enough hours in the day. We actually do need to sleep a little bit. We actually do need to take a break once in a while. It's priority management. And it's priority management every day. You don't know what challenge is coming tomorrow. I was unfortunate in that my um, ex-wife and I were unable to resolve uh, differences. It created a unique situation. And what ended up happening was is that I ended up raising five girls, starting when my oldest was 13 and my youngest was seven. My oldest has now turned 30. All of my children have graduated from college. All of my children are contributing to society in some way. It was an incredibly difficult time. There was no textbook for this. There was really no one to talk to about this, except of course your family to try to get some help. My family lived more than 2,000 miles away on the West Coast. And so again, it was not time management, it was priority management. I had to cut back on surgery. I had to come in a little bit later than my partners and peers, which at times I'm sure was a concern of theirs. And it was of mine too, because of the peer pressure. Again, we're competitive. It felt uncomfortable to be the guy starting at 8.30 instead of the guy wanting to start at 7 a.m. It was uncomfortable being the guy that had to cut back his cases so that he could leave by 3 or 3.30 to make sure that his child had a parent at their sporting event or school event. But I did that because that was a priority. And then I had to figure out what's my next priority. One was running my practice. And so I incurred a higher overhead than some because I brought in more people to help me in my practice so that I could make sure that I could do things at home. In addition, I learned, and I just can't emphasize this as much as, as over and over again, that you just could never get done as much as a single individual than you can as a team. And I was very fortunate that the team with Midwest Orthopedics was so strong. And as we put together one talented attending after another, talented fellows, talented residents. And we worked selfishly to include people in our projects and our procedures and our patient care. It actually raised the bar for everybody. Everybody got better. Everybody wrote more papers than anyone ever expected to write. Everyone did more surgeries than anyone ever expected when they started their practice. Everyone gave more lectures. Everyone had a greater influence. 
And as we got further along, we were able to pass that on to mentor others like the two of you so that you would get the same benefit of the team approach that we took. And I brought that home with me. I had to have a team approach for my daughters, for the people that helped me care for the girls, for their teachers and others. And that team approach is so valuable at home and at work. But again, it all starts with what is your priority? And I think that that's oftentimes challenging when you have sort of what you call the traditional style of, of, a, of a couple that's married or together and has children. And as an orthopedic surgeon, whether you're the husband, the wife, or the partner, as the orthopedic surgeon, you focus on your job and you let the other person focus on what goes outside of your job. And I understand that that works for a lot of people, but you're missing half your life if you can't focus on what's going on at home. And that's a lesson that I believed in, but I didn't really learn until I actually had to do that day in and day out. And I try my best to share that with the younger people, how important this is. This is not a sprint. I know it feels like that sometimes. This is a marathon. This is something that you're going to want to do for the next 25 to 30 years or more. It doesn't matter what you did this week or this month. It matters what you did over the last few years or last five years. It matters what you did to the other people in your life. And it starts at home and it comes to work. And you will be as successful as you want to be if that's a priority if you make sure and take care of the key responsibilities in your life. So I think uh, what I learned, and you know, again, some of this is easier to talk about than actually do. And I, I, did I make mistakes? Absolutely. Did I mess things up? Did I miss uh, one of the most important uh, volleyball matches of my daughter's career? And I've been disappointed ever since. Yes, I did. Did I miss one of my daughter's very important social events? Yes, I did. There was one person to cover five. I missed things and I regret it. But I, I do know that I made the effort to try to prioritize those things day in and day out. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I, I, got a, I stayed up at night and I wrote out the schedule. I typed up the schedule for each and every one of my daughters. And it was on the kitchen bulletin board. So when they got up in the morning, they knew exactly what they needed to do. But the younger kids, of course, it was a confusing time. And they couldn't remember. So every one of them in their lunches that I made for them had a piece of paper that had their schedule with times on it, who was picking them up, where they were supposed to be, and all their teachers knew that. So that if they forgot, they would just be reminded, just look in your lunchbox. Your dad has your schedule for you. That sounds amazing, but what was really amazing and part of the priority was I was getting phone calls all day long from them, from their teachers, while I was in the operating room, while I was trying to take care of patients. It was distracting, it didn't work when I set up these schedules and I had everything organized and everyone on the same page, guess what? I could focus on taking care of patients when I was at work. I could get into flow when I was operating on patients at work. I could do my best. And when we were done with homework, I could do things like my own homework, my own papers and work on other projects. So if you focus on the priorities, and you take care of those things and don't let them just simmer and distract you, it will help you in terms of balancing your entire life. I learned so many things that have been helpful for me that I hope that I've been able to share with the people that have trained with me and those around me, and I will continue to do so. But I, I can't say enough that, you know, get your priorities in order. One of my favorite metaphors and I'll conclude with that, is the metaphor of the jar. And 
the teacher takes large rocks and puts them in the jar and says, is this jar full? Because they're all the way up to the top. And of course, some people say, yeah, you can't get another large one in there. And then he takes out another set of smaller rocks and he pours that in there. Now it looks like it's completely full. And says, yeah, no, you're full. Then he takes out sand and he fills the entire thing with sand. Says, now is this full? And of course, everybody says, of course it's full. And then he takes out a gallon of water and he pours the water in there and it fills up. So the metaphor is get your big rocks in the jar first, figure that out. Then prioritize to the smaller rocks and then the sand and then the water. And don't get too nervous about the water and the sand. If the big rocks are in the right place, everything else will work out pretty well. You're never gonna be perfect. You're always gonna be making mistakes. You gotta keep correcting yourself along the way. And then you'll be able to do some of the things that I was able to do. And while we talk about raising my $5 as a challenge, there's been no greater blessing in my life. I never heard you use that metaphor before. I, I love that metaphor. I love that metaphor because if you were looking at those rocks, it would be so tempting to take one of the small ones and put it in first. And I think that ultimately that's what one of the things you said that it's priorities is about making hard choices. Um, and that you're, they're ones that you'll often will feel uncomfortable with. And I, I love that you, you talked about that, you know, speaking of family and priorities and, you know, balanced life, we know that COVID-19 has really hit New York City the hardest um, and things seem to be getting more grim there on a day-to-day -day basis. We, we know you're there and in the thick of that right now. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with, with that in your life? Yes, Peter, I'm happy to speak about that. First of all, um, we had all been hearing about this virus from a different part of the world and how it was similar to SARS, the, uh, the severe acute respiratory syndrome that had happened previously and had some relationship to MERS, the Middle Eastern uh, Respiratory Syndrome. And, but it was suggested that this one is not as bad. Um, it can be bad in older people. And as the information became more and more clear that this actually is a very tenacious, very infectious, and very challenging virus, um, it started to catch our attention a lot in the United States a couple of months ago. Unfortunately, due to our political system, our government system, and almost to our society, we were not able to react. We, we react verbally, but we were not able to react uh, with putting things in place that other countries and other cultures have a better capacity to manage. So in the first 600 cases that occurred that were documented in New York, I was positive. My wife and I had a really nice dinner on a Thursday night. I woke up about five hours later and something changed. I couldn't breathe. It was that someone had put sand or water in my lungs and the lower part of my lungs. I didn't have an upper respiratory symptoms. I didn't have a fever. I just could not take a deep breath. It wasn't indigestion. It was something else. And I knew almost immediately that I had COVID-19. I was subsequently tested and positive. The course went downhill from there. You get more sick before you get better. But the underlying thing that really is anxiety provoking is this feeling that you just can't breathe right. And sometimes when your fever goes up and you've got a little congestion, that breathing gets even more difficult. Then you add to the fact that your wife gets the same thing and others can be affected by this. And you realize what an incredibly challenging situation this can be. So because of the initial guidelines and thoughts of this disease, uh, we were in isolation from the rest of the world in terms of not going to work. And we were able to spend a fair amount of time learning 
about this. In fact, I, I would honestly say I've learned more about virology and epidemiology than I ever learned in any part of medical school or beyond. And what I have realized is that um, this is, again, a moment in life when you've got to get your big rocks in the jar first. And you've got to focus on what's your main priorities. And my first thoughts were, as a leader in our organization, how do we protect the people? Yes, our asset is importantly recognized as the business of providing healthcare, the business of seeing patients and doing surgery and, and generating a revenue pay for our staff. That's all really important. And we're hearing different people talk about how important that is. But what's the biggest rock? The biggest rock is the people. Because if they're not there, none of this other stuff really matters. And so the first and foremost things is I've been, to be honest with you, a little disappointed in the leadership, not only the administrative leadership, but the physician leadership in arguing on behalf of using personal protective equipment at all times. We've initially relied on the World Health Organization, which developed their criteria for a much less contagious virus that did not typically infect people when the people were asymptomatic like this one does. This virus is a Trojan horse. 50% or more of the people that are getting sick are contracting that from someone who didn't know or didn't recognize they even had the virus. That's not the same as the other ones where symptoms would often precede the viral shedding. So we have to act as if everybody has it, and we haven't done that. And that's why we're on the precipice of an incredible tragedy in New York. And I don't want to be predicting sadness and sorrow, but to put it in perspective, it is very likely that we will have as many deaths had occurred at 9-11. And we know what impact that had on all of our lives. We are going to approach 1,000 deaths within the next week. It is not unreasonable to think that we'll go past the 3,000 to 3,500 deaths that occurred on 9-11 in our state alone. We should have been better prepared. We did not put the big rocks in the jar. We kept dealing with small things. And when forced to try to make decisions, some of our leaders didn't have the courage to make the difficult choices. Our healthcare workers need personal protective equipment for themselves, but also for those that are infected and shedding virus and don't even know it to protect others. We know what has happened in Italy. We know what is happening in Spain. We have to, we have to work on making sure that our healthcare workers are protected from others and from themselves causing this illness. And we have not done a good job because why? Because we have a shortage. That's not acceptable. It's just not acceptable. In our country, with our wealth, it's unacceptable to say there's a shortage. It hasn't been prioritized. They have not put the big rocks in the jars to start with. There's sand and water that are preventing the big rocks from getting in there. And that to me is an incredible disappointment. During this time, I will do my best as one of the leaders in our organization to keep an eye on all the people in our practice to do whatever I can to find the personal protective equipment somewhere in this country so that our staff can have it. And if they can't, they will stay six feet away and they will not be in an area where they can contract this condition. Because I've seen how challenging it can be in healthy people. And I don't want this on anybody. I think the sad thing that people are just realizing the rest of the country too is in New York, we've already experienced something that was not very clearly stated. 
50% of our people that are being hospitalized are under the age of 60 in New York. We have 30 and 40 year olds dying. We have people that are in the healthcare system that are on respirators already. It is, this is not a simple virus. This is not the flu. And again, I don't wanna go through all the arguments. I think the important point is, is that we gotta get our big rocks in the jar first. Let's get the protection available for our healthcare workers now. Let's keep testing so we can at least make people aware. I realize we can't test everyone. We don't have that system. And we can't track everybody down like they've done in South Korea and Indonesia. But what we can do is make sure that people are aware that this disease is everywhere. In fact, the infection rate in New York is highest in any population in the world, anywhere in the world right now. And the only reason we know that is because our governor has made sure that we could test as many people as possible. And I think we should keep testing, even if we can't use it to track down and, and sort of suppress this, it will keep people aware of how severe this is. And then we've got to do everything we can to take care of these people that are gonna get so sick over the next month to six weeks. We need respirators. We're, we're being offered less than a thousand respirators from a government agency and so then what are you gonna do with the 15 to 18,000 other people that need a respirator that we don't have in New York? We have to do a better job and we can do a better job. Put the big rocks in the jar first. Let's get this thing taken care of. And then that would be really an amazing effort by all of us. I don't think that's what's happening now is too disjointed from the lessons in life. You know, we have to think about people first and we have to care for people. As an educator, my job in orthopedics is to help young surgeons in training reach their fullest potential. And that includes not only teaching them, but trying to mentor them and try to share with them principles of living a life that's balanced and helping them learn how to get into the flow when they're taking care of people in the operating room. I think that's part of of the priorities. I think it's important that we recognize that we have a call to all of society when it's necessary. We're fortunate that we are involved in a profession that is, is very, very uh, valuable to society. It's about life and living. It's about quality of life. And we've created tremendous techniques to, and, and, and technology to help people get there. But we can't forget about the fact that uh, there is a bigger part of life that we're all part of, that we need to assume our responsibility when necessary, such as during this pandemic. And, and I think that um, it's really important, again, our priorities, we've got to take care of our family. We've got to take care of our older family members, our parents, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles, keep them isolated. We've got to make sure our kids understand that they may be carrying the virus, even if they're not sick. And we've got to help out our peers on the healthcare front. We should be doing things like some places are doing, which I really admire, respect, and compliment. And that is, let's take over the urgent care centers, all the musculoskeletal care. Let's do that. I, we should be seeing the ankle sprains and the wrist sprains and the back soreness and all of that stuff. Don't put that burden on top of our emergency department people and our ICU people and all of them. Let's get, we're musculoskeletal specialists. Let's help our peers. Let's help our healthcare workers so they can focus on the task at hand, which is much more critical than what we do in most cases. And we should be working with um, the hospital, with the society and with others to make sure that people are educated to try to get resources uh, as much as possible um, and, and try to preserve as many lives as possible. While all this is all going on, um, there is a place for, again, uh, for us to continue with our lifelong goals of learning something every day, trying to get better every day, and working on putting the big rocks in the jar and making sure that 
we can create a peaceful life away from work. So all of this ties together if you really, really want to be successful and have a great life. Well, your voice um, helping us to keep our priorities straight in this difficult time is certainly, I think, useful for all of our listeners to hear. Certainly, I, I personally have always always found your advice to be so insightful and helpful. I, I know that I personally owe you a great debt. And uh, as Rachel mentioned, all of the people that I teach owe you a debt and all of my patients owe you a debt for everything you've, you've taught me and taught all of us over the years. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to come on with us on the podcast. And again, thank you on a personal level for everything you've done for me and for my patients and those that I'm educating now. Uh, Peter, I, I want to thank you and Rachel because you've been part of my life and part of my family. And because of who you are and what you represent and what you do to care for other people, uh, that motivates me and incentivizes me to continue to try to be the best that I can. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah, Dr. Romeo, thank you so much. I'll echo what Pete said. And for our listeners, that's about all the time we have for this podcast. We truly want to thank our guest, Dr. Tony Romeo. What a privilege it's been for us to get to share this hour and do this podcast with our mentor. For everyone out there, stay strong, stay safe, stay at home, wash your hands. And for our healthcare workers, our first responders, and everyone keeping society running, our thoughts are with you. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.